0: Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall.
1: Hello, and uh, welcome to CTN. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOtalknetwork.com. And today's topic is Individual Revolution in Healthcare, Beyond the Hype so what are we talking about here see the personalized medicine took off and people have been doing that for a little bit and then even we are talking about therapeutics which are to be data driven and hyper customized in terms of the experience they offer and the whole idea is that whether a patient is registering or getting diagnosed with whatever ailments they may have getting treated or recover Throughout that journey, uh, there seems to be uh, an individual revolution that the whole healthcare is experiencing or at least trying. But to be very frank, we can add all the technology and also changes in processes. How is it impacting the very end goal with which the healthcare even started, which is improving the patient experience and outcome? And idea on this discussion on this show will be to cut through the hype and see, is it really working out and the business benefits it's delivering? And if not, what would it take? So to discuss this, I have with me Molly Venkatesan, who is the CIO with Optum Health and Clinical Services at United Health Group. Hey, Molly, how are you? I'm doing good. Happy New Year, Sanjog, to everyone and uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, sir, too. Thank you. And we have Patrick McGill, who's the Executive Vice President, Chief Transformation Officer with Community Health Network. Hey, Patrick, how's life?
2: Hey, good morning. Doing well. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Beautiful. Happy New Year to you as well.
1: So, you know, let's jump right in. When we talk about the topic about individual revolution, I think there might be different interpretations for this in terms of the level. And the type of individualization that we may be thinking in healthcare. So, how about we start, Molly, with you as this first question: that what do you see as the true north that an individual should define when it comes to individual revolution in healthcare?
3: Great, Sanjog. Thanks. Thanks for that question. And uh, let me give set up some context. And when I answer that true north for uh, individual revolution. And in the context of Optum Optum Health, so Optum Health is a comprehensive patient-centered care organization that enables high-quality, accountable, value-based care. So Optum Health across deliver better experiences for for patients, providers, improve the health outcomes, and lower cost of care, which is your quadruple aim. and, and, uh, And if I have to use by the numbers, if I have to use by the numbers Optum Health As broadly as 70,000 employed or aligned physicians across more than 2,200 sites of care in 44 states. We work with more than 100 payer partners. We serve more than 100 million unique consumers with integrated care. The most important thing in all of this is more than 3 million of those are patients served under fully accountable value-based arrangements. That's a million increase from last year, and we expect it to grow to 4 million in 23, joe Optum and Optum have been building these capabilities because we see a comprehensive value-based care is the way to deliver better outcomes, quality for patients, better role for providers, and better value for money for payers. We strongly believe it's a truly sustainable way to modernize the health system for all the key participants since we are talking about the value based care and what is the individual revolution in that is going to be our job is to translate this for the consumers the complexity of healthcare and the work that's happening across the us healthcare system around everybody that needs it now what does the value based care look like today is more important for you for us to understand for if I have to use certain numbers and data from our primary care physicians engaged in value-based care clinics, we see the annual wellness visits increase at a 24% higher rate in value-based model compared to fee-for-service models. When we compare our patients in the Medicare Advantage plans to people in traditional MA plans who see other providers of patients, we are able to achieve hypertension control by 14% or more and diabetes controlled by 7% more often. Receive comprehensive medication reviews 7% more often. And the post-hospitalization, which is the most important thing for medication reconciliation is 39% more often. This is incredibly important in helping avoid adverse drug reaction. And I can use the same analysis and and data around home-based medical care, where we have seen reduction in patients' hospital admissions, ED visits, anywhere from 15 to 25%. Our physician-led care network at ambulatory surgical centers deliver patient outcomes at less than half of cost of the hospitals. That gives me belief that we are off to a good start but there is still a lot more to do for innovation in individual revolution in healthcare, as we all know. We are always looking at the clinical model and the best way for care for patients with specific conditions, if you look at. And if you look at our advanced clinical decision support has been working on care regimens for patients with type two diabetes. That work is still happening. The impact is clear. Clinicians using tools followed best practice guidelines 98% of the time, versus 72% by clinicians without access to a clinical decision-enabled support tools and products. This, that is a clear indication of how quality is getting improved and efficiency while reducing cost. Now, there's so much more to do in building the technology to accelerate the shift to the value-based care that I talked about earlier. The most important thing I'm sure that all of us know that healthcare is deeply personal. So we as an industry need to focus on creating a healthier world, one site, one connection, one person at a time. This means how do we apply technology that can enable the individualization using deep learning, artificial intelligence, all all the advancements in technologies does as eed results in other industries that we have seen in our day-to-day life. It calls for building deeper industry expertise with data, analytics, and re-engineering and automation of our emerging technology. We all have seen the impact of COVID to our families or to our communities. It has also impacted the way we work. More importantly, it has accelerated the role that technology plays in connecting people To the care they
1: need. So so what what you described, I mean, first of all, fascinating data and congratulations on the level of success that you've seen by working on that value-based care mission and leveraging to some extent, or maybe to quite an extent, this whole individualization in healthcare or individual revolution in healthcare. So coming to you, Patrick, this is like a holy grail. Almost Molly, it looks like that you you, you, you kind of reach there. You know, you reach nirvana. Maybe I'm sure there's more to do there. But Patrick, most organizations don't seem to have that story yet. So what true north should they paint for yourself? And as Molly said, that should we just take value-based care, which is not adopted 100% across till now, should we take that as a vision, and then use that as a trigger or a catalyst to get individual revolution actually take a foothold in this industry?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, you know, kudos to Muli and his team and, and the Optum Healthcare team for the results that they that they've uh, been able to generate. You know, Community Health Network is an integrated healthcare system based in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. We have about 1,300 providers. We share the same feelings about the future of value-based care. We've been very bullish in value-based care um, with with moving aggressively uh, into value-based uh, contracts. More so in the government payers, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, um, and some of the others um, versus uh, commercial. Commercial value-based contracts are a little bit more complicated, and you know, there's there's been successes, uh, you know, in certain systems. Um, more so than others, and I think for a lot of healthcare systems, it's complicated. So when we look at the true north um, in that individual revolution, I think there's a there's a couple different aspects that we need to. So I'll take a different approach than uh, to the answer to the question that Muli did, uh, but but again, you know, reiterate a- everything that he said uh, and completely agree with with value based care. But but there's a couple different aspects I think you need to to look at you know, certainly uh, every health system, uh, healthcare in general is, is absolutely facing these labor challenges. Uh, labor has been probably the most common topic that you hear about in the, the labor shortages, the cost of labor, et cetera. And there's this idea that technology is gonna somehow solve those labor challenges. So how do you balance, you know, technology, value-based care, uh, and the individual approach, because people, at the end of the day, we're still dealing with real people, real patients, uh, real experiences, real medical conditions, you know, life-changing events. Uh, we always say, you know, we run a, a, a business, a healthcare system runs a business that's open 365 days a year, you know, 24-7, and 99% of people don't want to be there. And so it's a, it's it's a challenge to create that exceptional experience, And so how, again, how does technology play a role in that? I think what we strive for is that people in healthcare have the same expectations that they have when they shop in retail stores, when they do banking, you know, all these other industries that they have experienced, they're wanting the same experience in healthcare. And healthcare has been a little bit late to adopt for many different reasons. Part of it could be regulatory, part of it could be technology, part of it could be, you know, um, EMRs, part of it could be, you know, HIPAA com, you know, uh, compliance and other things. So there's been a, a difficulty in, in that technology adoption. Um, but the one thing I'll say is, is, is also one of the things that, that I think a lot of health systems struggle with is the experience has to be real. So we can talk about frictionless experiences, but how people experience that on a day-to-day basis has to be real. They have to experience frictionless care for it to be a reality uh, when they come in their system. So oftentimes we struggle with variable adoption of technology. It's, it, sometimes it's not a shortage of technology when you talk about things like digital check-in, digital communication, digital education, you know, those types of things, but it's a variable adoption by the staff and by the patient. Uh, we turn on a lot of digital tools when it comes to checking in, paying the bill, but we still see that the adoption of those tools is low and we're, we're continuing to investigate. Why is that a expectation of, well, this is how healthcare is. And so I don't, I don't have an expectation for, for digital frictionless experiences in healthcare like I do in others. Is it awareness? Is it education? Is it um, usability of the tools? And so how do you continue to go down um, um, those pathways to, to really uh, evaluate. I think the, uh, another uh, interesting point, um, and, and Mouly kind of touched on this, is is all healthcare local? For years and years and years, we've had this premise that healthcare is local. I think COVID and the pandemic probably is challenging that. Technology is going to challenge that. So that that kind of holy grail of the patient doctor experience or the relationship, that's being challenged and what's the role of technology uh, in that relationship now? So, you know, I think that I think the, the other thing is at the end of the day, as we move towards value-based care and quote unquote population health, you're dealing with at populations, right? By definition, you're dealing with what's best for a population of patients, but you also have to balance the individual sitting in front of you who has individual needs, has individual issues. And has individual uh, aspects of their care that has to be delivered. So I think it is a challenge: uh, the balance of populations and value-based care and the individualization of care that that, uh, quite honestly, people expect.
1: So Patrick, do you uh, did you experience uh, the scenario that if you build, they will come, but they didn't come to the level you wanted? And they means the patients as well as your internal constituents, because when you're trying to individualize. This healthcare experience, that means your internal processes and tools and people also need to align. And then on the other hand, the patient also needs to step up and say, okay, I'm willing and will feel comfortable with this approach, which is more technology enabled versus a person holding my hand in a clinic. Where was the friction when you said you want to make it frictionless, but you said there is friction because there's a lack of adoption, but who is not adopting?
2: Yeah, I think it's across the board. So we've tried to say, okay, what customer segments are not adopting? We'll take, we'll take online bill pay, for example. Uh, bill pay in healthcare is complicated, right? Cause you have, it's not like you're going to a retail store where you buy something and you pay the bill and you're done. You have this third party insurance company that's in the mix, maybe multiple insurance companies and, and it's complicated. So, so, but again, at the end of the day, online bill just paying the bill that you're due, that you owe online. You see that across the board with different customer segments. Younger patients tend to pay their bill online. Older patients who are the predominant users of healthcare tend to not. And so, how do you create these back to the individual experiences? How do you create individual experiences across all of your customer segments uh, for the for the experience that they want and desire? And that that's what I think that's where we're running into some difficulty in healthcare is. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a, if you build it, they will come, because you have to build multiple things uh, to meet people where they are.
1: So, Molly, since you claimed that you were able to push through quite a few of these changes and get people to adopt, and that's why you're seeing the, uh, the successes that you had quoted, how did you crack the code, the adoption code? So, so appreciate that, and and
3: and greater insights from Patrick on on his perspectives. Uh, so, couple things, couple things on what what I quoted is still what Patrick said, and I wanna I wanna underscore that that we have seen this value based care models working in our Medicare Advantage area, mainly in the Medicare and in the Medicaid space, not in the commercial population yet not in the commercial population. And and just to quote some stats there, you have what 170 million Americans in the commercial insurance environment. And and I honestly don't have a crystal ball to see what the next few years holds on the commercial payer market space, yes, and the value-based care. But some of the capabilities that I outlined that we have seen in the Medicare Advantage space could and should, with the right variations, carry over to the commercial markets as well. That's important. That's important to see because the the reason on a lot of the adoption that you're talking about, you're seeing in one sector, which is the Medicare sector, that, that the value-based arrangements is working is because of uh, the incentives created both on the payer and the physician market space by, uh, by the marketplace, enabling that to happen. And, and that's why I said what I said in terms of in the commercial population, in the commercial marketplace, we wanted to see how that's going to happen. The bill pay in every example that Patrick used is a very clear example. And again, the most important thing, Sanjay, we got to understand 99% of the people don't want to be there in a hospital, in an ambulatory center, or in any clinic. So, so when that is the case, how do you engage them when the first premise of them don't want to be there, engaged, and they're there because there is something happening episodic in their life or chronic that they have to deal with. Now, health is not an absence of sickness. If that's an agenda, then how do you create education and enablement in the population across the country that enables them to see as healthcare is not sick care, and how do we think healthcare different? Like, you know, we use industries like uh, retail banking and other areas, how do we, How do we? when we have to retail, create a model like a retail model for healthcare, the consumers and the patients have to lead that way in terms of how that's going to change. And that's an important aspect that we have there as well. It's like, I don't have a crystal ball on these are the five things that's going to increase adoption. It changes. It's, uh, it doesn't, one size doesn't fit all. It changes for the different demographic. It changes for uh, different po- population of people that we deal with depending on their conditions. But at least what, what we are seeing is a good adoption of the value-based care tools, both on the physician side and the patient side in that demographic of population, Sanjog, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. So let's take a quick break, listeners, we'll be right back. And since you know it takes a village to deliver good health care, let's talk about when we come back, and Patrick, this question is going to be for you, about the kind of collaboration and mindset convergence, if you will. That should happen between the payers, providers, medtech and pharma players, so that they come together and support and in fact, act as a catalyst, let this convergence act as a catalyst for that individual revolution. What would it take and where are we with it today? Please stay tuned, we'll be right back.
0: Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjo Joe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Patrick, we know that
1: uh, a pair, a provider, a med tech Indirectly and pharma indirectly, in some form or fashion, touch the patient. And all of them, they are almost sometimes they seem like they're parallel lines, that they're all working towards patient experiences and outcome. But the collaboration that should happen in an ideal state, we are not that close to that level of desired collaboration or convergence. So while they are getting their respective collaborative juices flowing, it also undermines the true potential of that individual revolution in terms of healthcare delivery and patient experience and outcome. So where do we stand today? If you had to give the state of collaboration, which would help individual revolution, what would be your take on that? And if it is less than desired, what do you think should happen? for it to get to or at least start moving in the right direction so we see individual revolution reach its true potential?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that the currently, uh, the current state is the intent is positive. I think the current state performance is probably less than ideal, and here's, here's why I say that. I think everybody that you name, the payers, the providers, medtech, pharma, everybody has the best of intent. Um, they all, as I said before, healthcare is complicated. So each one of those entities has a a relationship, a unique relationship with the patient. So the payer has a relationship. The employer has a relationship if they have employer sponsored healthcare, the provider technology that they're using, maybe it's wellness, uh, wellness technology platform, whatever, um, you know, their pharmacy, their pharmacy benefit, they all have relationships with the patient. And so I think that the intent is there to create this individual experience, this frictionless experience, this digital experience. But where I think that the, where the current state is, is it, and maybe it's regulatory driven, maybe it's, it could be privacy driven, maybe it's patient driven, is how do you horizontally or longitudinally match those uh individual experiences with the entities together. How do you stitch those together for a seamless um experience? So so I'll give you an example from outside of healthcare. So let's say when you went into a store, you dealt with one entity to sh- see what the inventory, what's available, what are they selling? You had to deal with another entity to you had to, you know, Deal with a completely different company to buy it, then you have to deal with a completely different company to deliver whatever you bought. It's complicated. So how do you how do you stitch those things together? And I think that's where I think the the intent is there, but the current performance is suboptimal. So what needs to change? I think that there needs to be um, we need to all remember that the patient is at the center. Uh, we all have different priorities. We all have di- the entities, I should say, all have different priorities, all have different needs. Um, but the, at the end of the day, it's the patients at the center. So how do we continue to go down the pathway where the patients at the center with all of these different interactions, um, like you said, converging to create one seamless experience? I think there's needs to be technology changes, some technology updates, which I think that they are. You know they're moving in the right direction. I think there needs to be regulatory changes and updates which are slow but are moving in the right direction. Um, I think there needs to be um, all the other entities, the employer, so health plans, um, even some patient mindset need to change um, when it comes to how they interact and deal with that. So I don't know that it's I don't know that it's a simple answer. I don't know that it's a six month or twelve month horizon. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we need to play the long game um, and continue to move forward. Um, it, it, it's, it's complicated and it's going to take time to change. So, uh, Molly, when you have uh, worked with
1: value-based care and you said uh, majority was the, you know, the Medicare uh, and Medicaid type of, you know, government-controlled programs, that is a different it has different swim lanes for the payers, providers, medtech, and pharma. And when you're coming to commercial sector, you have different, but you got better adoption there. So, are you saying because it there was a government-controlled and or um, more regimented approach to how it is run, that's what gave you the forced collaboration among those entities? That's what got you the the, the right support from all of these uh, entities. As a result, you got the value from it, or there is something else which is uh, to be done differently with this commercial sector or overall so that these guys collaborate overall better.
3: So, so I think Patrick's perspective was phenomenal and great. And, and just to add on, Sanjog, and, and uh, if you take in 2007, only 19% of the U.S. hospitals were still paper-based in our country just 2% had advanced use of EMRs. Even in 2012, we had less than 20% of hospitals at advanced use of EMRs. Five years later, 90% of medium to large hospitals is in the advanced stage of EHRs and EMRs. I want to give that as a context in terms of the revolution that we are trying to see in healthcare is behind all the other industries because it started happening predominantly late in the marketplace broadly, and I just wanted to. And more importantly, in the, in the value-based care models across all payers, what we are seeing, payments made in the traditional fee-for-service healthcare shrunk by less than 40% in 2020. The most even recent year available healthcare payment learning and action network has this data, probably they published something mid-December you can see, Shared savings and bundled payments accounted for 34%. Fee-for-service linked to quality and value by 20%. Population-based payment was little under 7%. All these are leading and lagging indicators that tells us the value-based care model is the model that the industry is slowly, slowly pivoting to. For all the entities that pay for and consume healthcare, the market for high-cost, high-cost low-value healthcare will continue to shrink, and then, you know, I don't have the crystal ball, but a few years from now, I don't think there will be a market that will exist for a high-cost, low-value healthcare, and that shouldn't, and and, uh, with healthcare nearing almost 20% of our economy, I think we have a moral obligation to make sure that shouldn't exist in the marketplace. And, uh, and to do that, the most important thing from my standpoint, you know, you talked about payers, providers, medtech, pharma players converging the agenda. And I agreed to make all of that work. It's not just one lever. It's not just a regulatory driven lever. It's not just a privacy. It's not a consumer. All of them have to drive consistently coordinated way to make this transformation happen. Not just technology. Technology is going to be a critical enabler. It's going to give you what the future is going to look like. But to get there, all of these players have to align on that. And for that, one of the most important things that I feel and Optum and Optimal feel is how do we bring value from all of the data and the connectivity across this ecosystem is going to be super critical and crucial for us to bring the customers, consumers, patients, providers, payers right the first time. Into this ecosystem, that's going to be important. In internally, we say sometimes healthcare industry is data rich and information poor, and uh, and so the interoperability of ecosystems is going to be critical and clear for the supply chain of information flow that should happen in healthcare cinder and that's critical.
1: So. Uh- Patrick, uh, I can tell you, you know, of course, and over the years I've spoken to quite a few people and facilitated quite a few events globally with healthcare leaders in the room. And there has been this uh, issue with data not being shared intentionally or there's another ecosystem issues or frictions. And if the entities don't share data among each other, not sure how individual revolution can even take place because that's the very currency of it. So, are we trying to move to the Star Trek mode when we do not have the basics in place?
2: Well, I I think, I mean that's a good question. I think there's this there's this evolution of you know um, patients quote unquote owning their own data. The portability of data. And I think that there's been incremental improvements of that over time. But I, I think you're right. I think a lot of the reason, though, that that these entities don't share the data is, is uh, some of the regulations, right? They're not allowed to, or they're fearful to share it, or they're going to violate something. Um, and so I think, again, you have to go back to the patient in the middle. It's their data. It's their journey. It's their health or well-being or wellness or chronic disease or whatever, what does the patient need to create this exceptional experience? And part of that's data, part of it's technology, part of it's education, understanding on and on, on down the list. But I think you're right. At the end of the day, you know, value-based care is dependent on having the data. Um, cost reduction is dependent on having the data. Experience is dependent on, exceptional experience is dependent on having the data. And so how do you get to a point where you can share the data, share the data from an interoperability? So just a technical, how do you share the data? And I think we're getting better with, you know, some of the um, API advancements, some of the legislation to, to require the, the data sharing, you know, information blocking, et cetera. I think those things are improving. We're making some incremental steps. Um, I think there's, but there also has to be a mindset shift from the patient to understand that I'm now the owner of this data and I need to, you know, I have a responsibility when it comes to uh, the data to, you know, when it comes to sharing and everything else. I think there's a long legacy of, or or other entities have kind of hoarded the data and said, no, this is mine. This is my chart. You can't look at the paper, you know, back in the paper chart days, you can't look at this chart secret. And I think we've come a long way uh, to, to get rid of that mentality. But I think if we also have to shift that the patients have to understand what their role in all of this is. They're not a passive uh, participant. And I think that's, I think changing that will, will um, and having a better understanding of what patients want. You know what? What are people expecting from the health system, or the payer, or their employer, or med tech, or whatever uh, other entity might be?
1: So, Molly, when you got some progress, right? You you were able to move further, and you were able to show some successes. Did you, you know, got a change of heart from these entities, or were you able to do some workarounds so that you could get that data, that foundational element, in place? to a certain degree where good was it was good but not perfect but let perfect not get in the way of good so you got the good level of data integration and good level of data availability for you to realize this whole individualization great and and i just wanted to make
3: sure that we don't get even in the value based care arrangements in in our models when i talked about 3 million that we have done and we are aiming for 4 million for it, right end of this year, we don't want to get caught aiming for stars on the value-based care model while ignoring the physician and the patient experience challenges that are right in front of us. And that's that's been a core premise for our approach across across Optum and Optum Health The most important thing in all of this data ecosystems, which is the most important thing, it's about connecting people. I want to underscore what Patrick said. It's about having the patients, the consumers, the people in the middle. It's about connecting people to the care team. How do you connect payers to providers for the right relevant information? And how do you ultimately connect a disconnected system, disparate systems, so it works better for the people that it was created to serve? It's that is We we bring back to, to that premise in terms of are we doing that? How good we are doing that on a day-to-day basis, so, Joe. That was, that was rooted in terms of how we approach that. To do that with, of course, with the interoperability in the Cures Act and, and from a payer and provider standpoint, there's a lot of regulatory rules that helped in terms of information sharing, API interoperability, common standards, fire standards are all getting established and different entities, different players are in different journeys in the maturity in that. But that standardization is definitely helping from a pure technology standpoint. But what, what we feel, that these large ecosystems, this calls for creating a consumer-centric platform. When I use platform, I'm not just talking about a technology platform. I'm broadly talking about an interoperable, intelligent platform that connects multiple disparate entities in, in a common way. This, this is super critical for us to, in the next phase of the journey, how do we drive that? How do we integrate mental behavioral health, medical pharmacy solutions to a clinician's holistic viewpoint? We talk about longitudinal care, comprehensive care, but end of the day, when a patient is in front of the physician, the physician has, what, 15, 20 minutes, and how do we provide all of this information in a relevant, personalized way for that physician to make a meaningful engagement with the patient in the 15 minutes they have in the office or in the post-visit discussions. That's that's where data becomes critical, that the data infrastructure and ecosystem becomes super critical on what is it enabling. It's not about two APAs talking to each other. It's about what information relevant that it is communicating. For a senior member that has got diabetes, hypertension, you can take on almost most of our population runs into that and struggling with depression at the same time. Then how is the care team surrounded by them with the primary care quarterback? What information are we providing in making that senior's life better? That's the question we've got to continue to ask when we're trying to solve for these data problems. It's not connecting two pipes together. It's about what are we going to make, what, are, what are we going to make things better by connecting the pipes? That's the question we continuously and constantly keep asking. Can I, so, can
2: I tag on to something that, that Molly just said? Absolutely. So this concept of standardization versus individualized, individualization is a, I think it's something that the healthcare provider system, um, healthcare providers haven't fully reconciled. And we've seen it over and over again. If you look back over the last 10 to 20 years, you see it in value-based care, this concept of I'm an, inju- and I mean, transparently, I'm a, I personally am a family physician. I still practice, see patients. So there's this balance of I'm a trained physician or APP or, you know, whatever it might be. And I've been educated. I should have, you know, the freedom to practice as I see fit versus some of the standardization that requires, you know, that, that is, is absolutely necessary for success in value-based care, successful technology adoptions. That's really some of the main complaints that we've got over the years with EMR implementations, right? Is it forced people into a standardized way of documenting, standardized way, and you can, we can talk for hours on, you know, the pros and cons of EMRs. That's not the point, but the point is this, this concept, it permeates a lot of the conversation we're talking about, the standardization versus individualization, and I think that physicians. The healthcare provider community hasn't fully reconciled that, and until we do that, that's going to be a major barrier in in moving this experience forward, in moving this um, this concept of of individualized care. So, how do you balance the from a patient standpoint? We talked about earlier kind of the standard for the individualized care, but there's the the elephant in the room is really that that provider community as well. Standardization versus uh, autonomy in practice. So for you know we can't boil the ocean.
1: So how do we bite the elephant and chew at a time,
2: Patrick? Yeah, I think part of it is is it's going to be generational cultural change. So we see newer physicians who don't are not as not as um, uh, don't hold on to this autonomy. They want autonomy when it comes to lifestyle and well-being from a a lifestyle burnout, Um, but not necessarily autonomy from practice. This is just anecdotal, right? So I don't have a study to show this or data. I mean, this is just what we see day to day when it comes to technology adoption or or other things. So I think it's going to take time um, and it'll just have to be a generational shift uh, as people. I mean, we always kind of joke and say, Physicians that are coming out of training now, for the last however many years, have never written a paper prescription. Um, they, you know, they they've never practiced on paper. So, you know, there there will be some generational shifts that occur over the next ten to fifteen to twenty years. And I think over that time, you know, the expectations will change, the patient ex- expectations will change, the technology will change. Um, I, I mean, I agree with everything Amulya was saying about. What problem are we trying to solve, and we shouldn't just have technology to have technology and the connections. You know, what are we trying to improve? Um, But I wanted to, you know, he he mentioned this, and I wanted to. I think it's an important point when it comes to what we're talking about. Is this concept of standardization versus individualization is not something that's that's inconsequential. I think it's a major major barrier. So to your point, we can show some, you know, kind of the low hanging fruit, some quick wins when it comes to. Uh, technologies that we we do get standard adoption, you know, other things that we do get, um, um, and we can show those as quick wins and show those as 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 benefits. But wholesale changes across the industry, I think, will will take some time. Can I is
3: it okay if I can? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please go
2: ahead.
3: That's that's great because there's an article, there's a published one that says the medical knowledge doubles every 73 days, which means that no physician, you know, practicing can keep up to all the changes happening in the medical world, in the medical knowledge. And and it's no small change to realize the promise of value-based care by just democratizing medical expertise and bringing it to the front of healthcare to support clinicians. That's where what we call is the clinical decision support tools and products enabled by technology is super critical in making that happen, but the adoption on that is challenging today. And some of the things in in terms of even within our practices, what we have seen, it's not about the the challenges in adoption there. We have seen really really good success in in multiple of our diabetic type two products where the clinical decision support uh, have enabled multiple entities across our Optum Health uh, uh, centers. But the most important thing, some of the basic technology challenges are irritants to the physicians today, including login, multiple logins, multiple things. So, what we call as break glass within Optum Health, what we call as a program as break glass is what we call as the ankle biters. If we can remove all the simple, I think Patrick alluded to this as well earlier, simple ankle biter things, the irritants for the physicians, can add up and lead to their burnout. If we can remove that and enable that, a lot more adoption will continue to see happen. Is is We are seeing some indicators of that. And that's where we are focused on in leading through, is how do you create, for lack of a better term, is zero distance between what the physicians are seeing as their day-to-day problems and the problem solvers, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I'll just give you a, the- some practical examples of what Molly's talking about is, you know, when we talk about this balance, the standardization versus autonomy individualization is uh, we feel like that if you can automate and standardize some of the basic things, you actually allow people to work at the top of their license. We need physicians to be making critical decisions that only a physician with however many eight, nine, 10 years of training can make. You know, that's what we need them to be doing. Not deciding whether a patient needs an an hemoglobin A1C or not. Let the system, you know, for some of these, you know, automatic things, they're really no brainers. You know, are you due for an A1C? Do you need to have a mammogram? Are you due for a colonoscopy? Some of those things, let us configure the system to take those things off the plate. But you'd be surprised how much pushback that there is when you try and do those things. So it is this balance of automation versus uh, you know individualized the standardization versus autonomy. and I think that those things just have to work them work out over time
1: So one last question for both of you. I'll take start with you, Patrick. Um, you know when any Uh, any process or any new initiative that you start or you've been working on it and it's not working out the way you want. Yes, you're making some progress, but not to what you expect. It literally has to be pointed back to the management on how it was tackled, how it was led, right? Who were the Pied Pipers? So coming to that as a question, what type of a leadership uh, gap or blind spots do we need to remove? for this conversation to not be what it is where we are still finding gaps after many years and we could all be singing Kumbaya and life is good.
2: You know, I think at the end of the day, I think that ultimately what we're talking about is change management. So you have to employ some of the change management principles. You have to address the mindset of, of staff, of, of patients, of you know third parties, However, you wanna, however you want to look at that. So part of it is a mindset. You know, at the end of the day, it's people, process, and technology. So how do you address the people issues, mindsets, legacy thinking? Uh, what are the processes that need to change? We've learned many times over with EMR implementations, just layering technology on top of bad processes, all it does is just shine a big bright spotlight on your bad processes, right? It doesn't change anything. So you, I think oftentimes we get ourselves caught with looking for technology to just digitalize a bad process. So should we should we just completely start from scratch and overhaul the processes and build technology around that? And then finally, I think oftentimes we get caught with some legacy thinking when it comes to technology infrastructure. Some of the solutions that we have now are not going to be the solutions that we need in the future. So how do we constant, but we've made big investments in them. How do we constantly look at, you know, our, our technologies and, and where we want to go. And so, uh, you know, I think that it is, it's, it's, um, it's change management. It's changing people's mindset and the way they think it's looking at our processes. And, um, it, like I said earlier, it's a long game. Um, the goal of a marathon is to be running at the end. Right. And I think that's what we need to, um, we need to keep that, uh, top of mind.
1: So Molly, if, and there will be many healthcare leaders and even otherwise CXOs and directors, VPs, managers, who will listen to this discussion that two of you were, where two of you were sharing insights. What leadership audit should they perform? Where the outcome of that will give them the path ahead? Cause otherwise we'll keep spinning our wheels.
3: And, and I would, I would echo and say ditto to what Patrick talked about in terms of change management, people process technology to the, to the earlier parts and joke. And, and, uh, and in this one, the, the leadership attributes, I would also say, who's got to, you, talk, you your earlier question was, who's, sh- what must change in the leadership policies and the governance. And, and while we talked about the regulatory changes, we talked about some of the policies that, that's getting worked on in the Medicare space. And, and we need the patients and the consumers to lead the way here. The, the industry must work in concert around the need for comprehensive and the value-based care. For that to happen, the most important thing, patients and consumers like us all should lead the way in terms of the change that we wanted to see. Because once there is a stronger voice from a consumer standpoint, demanding how we want to see and experience healthcare, I think the entities and the regulator policies and everything will continue to change. As we have seen in many industries, the change that many industries went through started from consumers demanding a different way in which they wanted to engage with the system and the regulations and the policies following what the consumers' needs and demands were. So in this one, I would say the person, the people that have to lead this change, we can talk about easily, you know, big companies like United Health Group and payers and and entities and larger health systems, but I would rather say the patients and the consumers have to lead the way on this one, more importantly. And and as a... uh, for all the people that are listening on this one, I would say that the talent we need more talent than what we have today in the industry to solve this problem we need we need more consumer focused talent we need more patient focused talent we need more experience how do we create an experience that's that the consumers want an experience from an retail or a, you take any other financial industries. To do that, you need you need to have a different skills of talent to make this happen in this industry today. And that's part of the change management that Patrick talked about, people, process, and technologies. You need a different skill sets of people to drive and understand this problem. Because the most important thing in all of this, I would say it becomes our moral responsibility of every, anybody and everybody that's in the healthcare arena right now, To transform an entire sector of of, an economy at scale, and that that takes that, that takes a village. That takes a village. And even when I use the stats and where we were in 2012, where we were in 2020, you know, we just beginning in that transformation as an as an industry. So we have we have ways to go. We have places to go. I've shared a few examples where we have done well, which is great, but we still have a long way to go across. So. I would say our talent is more critical for us, and we need to bring in talent that's going to drive for us for the future. Sanjo.
1: Once again, thank you so much, Molly and Patrick, for sharing your thoughts and insights about how we can bring about this individual revolution in healthcare and cut through the hive with respect to technology and make the necessary changes, as both Patrick and Molly refer to as change management, people process, and of course, technology. So, thanks so much appreciate it. And our listeners, please connect with us on social media. Subscribe to our podcast once again for listening to CTN. This is your host Sancho Gall signing off. Till next week, take care and God bless.